Listener Production. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a club helping women to connect, learn and lead. Over my career, I've run teams inside newspapers, edited a magazine and launched my own business. This has meant building a team from scratch, leading through difficult times and managing the odd crisis. I've never had any leadership training because I thought you were either good at leading or you weren't. I thought being decisive was a key metric for success. I was wrong and it led me to make simple but avoidable mistakes. In this series, I'm doing what I should have done years ago, reaching out to people who I admire, who have also successfully run teams across all types of industries. So I can ask their advice on some of the common leadership challenges. As a veteran of many different types of newsrooms, I've witnessed a lot of mental health challenges. But in those days, we didn't talk about mental health issues. So I wanted to find out how you can be a better leader for staff with mental health issues. My next guest has worked in executive leadership roles at Foxtel, Qantas and Woolworths. But today, Emma Hogan is the New South Wales Secretary for the Department of Customer Service. And she's an ambassador for mentally healthy workplaces. And just a heads up, this episode does tackle issues of suicide and of course, mental health. Emma, welcome to the Future Women Leadership Series podcast. Can I just start by asking you, how many people do you actually lead? (laughs) Uh, Well, at the moment, it's roughly around 12,000 across the New South Wales Department of Customer Service. So there's multiple brands in there. But if I count everyone top to bottom, casuals, contractors and everything in between, it's about 12,000, yeah. And that would be fair to say the biggest team you've ever led? Yes, definitely. Off the top of your head, what are the key differences between leading a team that big versus leading a sort of a more traditional size, you know, anything from 30 to 100 team member? What I have learned years ago when I was at Qantas was I was uh, in a HR space then and I was looking after 6,500 staff and 6,000 of them were cabin crew and the other 500 were all people that got the plane off the ground and got the food on board and designed the uniforms and designed the service and that sort of thing. And then when I went to Foxtel, at the time, there was only 1,200 people at Foxtel and everyone thought I was mad that I was going from this kind of giant part of an even bigger organisation to a small organisation. But actually what I found is it's not volume, it's complexity. If you're leading 6,000 people but they all do exactly the same thing, then it's easier If you're leading 1,200 people, but those 1,200 people all do individual and very different things, then actually that's much more complex. So when I think about it, it's way more about complexity than it is about volume. So you could be managing a team of 10, but if they're all doing different things and they're all responsible for different parts of your business or different things, then it will be just as complex and take just as much time as leading 100 people doing the same thing might. So the role you have now as secretary in New South Wales for the Department of Customer Service How complex is that? Pretty complex. (laughs) Definitely the most complex thing I've ever done. But the way it works in government is you have secretaries, which in normal private sector language is probably more like a group CEO. And then you have multiple CEOs that report into you. So I've got Service New South Wales, Revenue New South Wales. There's a bunch of brands in there that I won't list off, but I've got some really good people who lead those individual streams. And my job is to sort of be the the coordinating CEO of them all, if you like. So it is very complex, but I've got very senior people managing those individual streams of complexity. 
which make it a much easier job for me to do. So effectively, you're leading a small team of high performers in a way. Yeah, I'm leading a team of high performers and in turn, they're leading really massive teams of high performers as well. So, you know, we get a lot of credit and I, you know, often get a lot of great feedback about our department and how far it's come and the difference it's making. But um, I know it sounds like a cliche, but it really is a team effort. When you've got 12,000 people, especially when you're working in government, government itself is complex, not just the process of government, but the customers you're serving often have complex issues. You know, people don't come to for government services because they want them, they come because they need them. So for anyone who's listening to this, it'd be helpful for you to explain how you go from Qantas, and as you say, Foxtel, and I want to talk about the leaders who led you in those roles too, to the public sector and why? Yeah, it's a great question and I get asked it a lot. Um, I'd never even thought about going to government. When I was at Qantas, it would be fair to say I was, you know, sort of mid-career approaching the senior ranks, but not quite in the senior ranks yet. Then I went across to Foxtel and I spent 10 years there. And I worked there in HR for the first seven and then customer experience and supply chain for the last couple. And then I took a career break and I genuinely wasn't sure what I was going to do next. And it was a recruiter that approached me about whether or not I would be interested in applying for this role called the Public Service Commissioner. And I and I say this publicly often, I really didn't know what that meant. I actually had to Google it. I, I'd heard of a police commissioner before, but no other kind of commissioner. So the whole concept of government was very, very foreign to me. But I had learned over the years to be open-minded. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, but I knew what I didn't want to do. And it wasn't on the no list. So I went and I had a look at it. And I went through the process. The night before my interview, actually, I tried to withdraw because I really had reservations about going into government. What would it mean? Could I really make a difference? How fast or slow was it going to be? What was the bureaucracy going to be like? But anyway, the interview panel were very convincing. And in the end, you know, obviously I was offered the job. And then 18 months after that, I was offered the opportunity to become the secretary for the Department of Customer Service. It wasn't something I'd imagined. Certainly being the secretary was something I'd never even considered. I mean, if you'd have asked me five years ago what a secretary was, I would have said it was an admin assistant. It's, you know, even the language of government is very foreign to me. But I have to say, best decision I've ever made, greatest privilege of my life. To work in a role where you serve the community you live in, it's been an amazing experience. You were very quickly identified in that role as a star. What do you think you did differently and why did you stand out? <laughs> well, I don't know if I, that your listeners can't see me blushing because I stood out as a star is probably not how I would describe it. I think I stood out as someone who asked different kind of questions and perhaps brought a different perspective. And I think perhaps willing to take some chances and some risks, but without stepping outside of the rules. And, and obviously, when you work in government, you know, you are publicly accountable. And every dollar you spend, every, every single thing you do is publicly owned. So you can't take risks in the same way that you can in the private sector, but you can think outside the square within it. I, and I don't mean that in a funds perspective, just the ideas that you might have and how you bring those ideas to life, it can be done. You've just got to be patient and, and work within the frameworks of government. And that's what we've been trying to do for the last few years. I interview a lot of people. I've interviewed a lot of people for many years now. Public servants are difficult to get them to say, agree, to be interviewed. Normally, you know, there's a lot of calls, there's some private discussions where I have to agree that I won't touch certain things and that I understand that you're a, you're a public servant and you can't answer political questions, etc. You didn't do that. You just said, yep, sure, I'll come and talk leadership. Why are you able to be so confident about your ability 
to answer questions in a way that's consistent with being in the public sector compared to everybody else? Yeah, so I, I'm surprised that you say that. I, I don't know is the answer. I can't speak for other people, but it's very important that public servants don't speak about anything political. We are apolitical and we're here to serve the government of the day. But when it comes to women in leadership, when it comes to mental health, which I know we're going to talk about a little bit later on, when it comes to what my lived experience is of being a, a female leader, I don't think there's anything controversial in that. So I'm happy to I'm happy to have those conversations. I think we've all got a story to tell and I'm happy to share mine if it will if it will make a difference to people. One of the things that you are is an ambassador for mentally healthy workplaces. And I want to understand that a little more. Tell me how did you come to take on that role and what does that mean in your day-to-day work? Yeah, so we, as part of the Department of Customer Service, we have the Safe Work group within it. One of the gentlemen who runs that was talking to me about putting together a group of mentally healthy workplace ambassadors. And he gave me the list of all of these different people that he wanted on it. And it was all about getting the message out about the different ways in which businesses can look after the mental health and safety of their teammates and colleagues. And I noticed that he didn't have anybody from government on the list. And mental health is an area that I'm particularly personally interested in. And so I asked him and the then minister, Minister Anderson, if I could be part of that program to represent government and to really advocate for mentally healthy workplaces. And they kindly agreed. So did a bit of work early on with Minister Minister Bronnie Taylor and Minister Kevin Anderson to get it off the ground and have been part of that group since. And I really try to embed a culture where it's okay to talk about issues that relate to people's mental health, constantly striving to create a psychologically safe environment. Now, I want to be very clear, we don't always get that right. But I think one of the problems is one of the reasons leaders struggle to talk about mental health is because they're letting perfection get in the way of good enough. And mental health and well-being is unique to every individual. And so I will try to lead to create this environment. Sometimes we'll get it right. Sometimes we won't. We've got 12,000 people. Not everybody is going to have a great experience. Not everyone's going to gel with everyone else. But my main goal is to make sure we're on the journey to doing a better job and that when we do make those mistakes, we learn from them and that we're constantly striving to be better because I don't think I can remember a time in my leadership experience, which is sort of 20 plus years now, where I've seen more mental health issues than we see now. I think it is becoming more and more talked about, more and more recognised and more and more a part of our day-to-day world. If we don't talk about it and we don't make it safe for people to talk about it, how's anybody going to thrive? We've really seen that during COVID, but I think about it more broadly than that. From my perspective, it's about championing the conversation, trying to work with our leaders and through all of the different leadership programs that we do and our wellbeing programs that we do is really making it a safe space for you to say, you know, no matter what your issues are, you can work here and we will do our very best to find a way for you to thrive in that environment. Again, you know, I'm not saying we're perfect, long way from it. You you, you would have some people who, for whom that had not been their experience, but it's something I'm genuinely committed to doing. And when we get it right, I'm thrilled. And when we get it wrong, I want us to learn from it and try again. And if we keep waiting to be perfect and have every perfect policy in place and every perfect leadership training program completed before we actually start on that journey, then we've failed before we've started. So we've got to be brave and we've got to make space for those conversations to happen. I've had different challenges of my own over the years. And I know that 
in those times when people have supported me, it's made a really big difference to the way I've tackled problems. And I would like us to be a culture where people want to work and feel that they can come to DCS and do their best work for the people of New South Wales, no matter your background, no matter your experience. So in a practical sense, am I obliged if I suffer from bipolar to tell my employer? No. As the boss, should I be disappointed if I'm not told that and I discover belatedly that there's an issue with one of my colleagues? I don't believe so. I think it's going to sound like the politically correct answer to say, but we've got to recruit on merit. And if somebody brings with them a lived experience with mental health issues, then, you know, we do our best to work with them to manage that. Now, some people don't tell us and they survive it and they do their very best within the workplace and perhaps they don't always say. Others will say up front and we'll do our best to support. Also, I think it's really important to know, often people have a mental health issue at a moment in time. It's not always an ongoing initiative. It's not always a lifetime thing. Sometimes a mental health issue is contextual. It could be grief. It could be something's happened at home. It could be something's happened to you that's meant your experience of life has changed, whatever it might be. And sometimes for people that means needing some time off. Sometimes it might mean medication. Sometimes it might mean some extra support. Sometimes it might mean accessing counselling services, which we do provide. Sometimes it might mean telling nobody everybody's situation is unique and personal to them. I just want to make sure that if people feel it's impacting their work or impacting the environment that they work in, that we do our very best to adjust and accommodate that. The thing that interests me, though, it's so new, really, in a sense, coming to terms with, firstly, as an employer, understanding the full range of what is a mental health issue and what does that look like and and that it expresses itself differently in every human all the way through to the younger generation employees absolutely own it. It's public, it's out there, it's in the Slack channel, it's like this is what's going on for me today. Coming from an old (laughs) newsroom background where there clearly were mental health issues in retrospect, but we didn't take any notice or talk about it other than, you know, notice that there was probably a bit much drinking going on. (laughs) Um, I guess I'm just looking for an understanding from you about the sorts of things that leaders should be looking for and how far they can stretch it and your experience in dealing with particular examples. It's a really great point. I think there's so much we can learn from the youth and and young people about how free and open they are because the fact that they're free and open usually means that they're trying to solve it or they're operating living in an environment where it's accepted and they recognise it as something that they they want to live with and learn from and work through. I think there's a lot for my generation and the generation above me who are still working just um, to learn from that. You know, again, it comes back to the context. You know, I've got some leaders who are really open to it. I've got others who want to do something about it but don't feel they have the capability or they're nervous. I think sometimes what stands in the way is, and you see this a lot around Are You OK Day, it's one thing to ask, are you okay? But what do you actually do if the person says, I'm not okay? You know, how do we make sure people are skilled up enough or know where to go for additional resources or point someone in the right direction or hold their hand or be a good listener? These are all things that we have to keep learning from and getting better and better at. Again, I, I don't think anyone's perfect. I just think we need to be braver and bolder in having these conversations and creating environments where people feel okay to, to speak up. We have a range of what we call ERGs, employee reference groups in government, and they're volunteers, and we have a whole bunch of them. We have one that's focused on women, one that's focused on young people, one that's focused on carers, 
one that's focused on our Aboriginal employees, one that's focused on our employees with a disability. There's quite a lot of them. And and basically how I use them is as policy advisors. I say, okay, we're creating a policy on hybrid working. We will put that policy out to those groups and say, what do you think? Is it covering everything? Have we, have we thought of everything we can possibly think of? Are we accommodating everybody? Do we need to be more inclusive, et cetera? And when I very first came, I noticed that we had all of these groups, but we didn't have a men's group. Now, if you look at the stats, men's suicide, I, I can't remember it off the top of my head, men's suicide from the age of 45 to 55, the rate, it's not higher than any other cohort, but it's specifically high. When I look at my demographics of my workplace, I've got a number of people in that bracket, probably 20, 25% of my workforce, maybe even a bit more. That's a very big cohort of people that I want to make sure do not become that statistic. What could I be doing as a leader to make men more comfortable in our workplace, make safe spaces for men to talk about those issues? Because I think they're one of the cohorts for whom mental health is a more challenging topic to talk through than it is for women. I think this is a sweeping statement and, and in your work, you'd know more than me, but I, I think women are generally better at talking or sharing, even if it's just with one or two people than men traditionally are. And I think that's dangerous. And I think we have an opportunity to create that space and that environment for those who need it and want it. What sort of leader do you think you are? I don't know if I'm the right person to ask. I I think I'm a learning leader. I think the leadership style I have today is very different from when I started and hopefully it'll continue to evolve right till the end of my career. Um, so yeah, I would say I'm a learning leader. I care deeply about the people and culture of our organisation. Maybe that's the HR background in me, but I've never seen an environment where customer outcomes or the bottom line are not improved by having a great culture. And so to me, I think if I can drive the culture and my team can help support that and drive the outcomes, together we can create the best possible organisation to work in. And in doing that, we get the best possible services and outcomes for customers. Like it's a, it is something in my heart that I care passionately about, but it also makes great commercial sense. I, it, I've never known a business to really thrive if they had an awful culture. And I've known plenty of businesses that thrive when they have a great one. So it just makes sense to me. So I think I'm very good at focusing on strategy and I think I'm very good at focusing on people. Always room for improvement. And I think if you surveyed our 12,000 people in our organisation, they'd give you a whole list of things we do well and a whole list of things we need to do differently or better. But that's human life, right? We all love some things and not others. And the thing about leading people is that not 12,000 people, they're not the same. They're all different. So I would like to say that I'm a listening leader and one that cares deeply about people and customers. And if we say you're um, managing high performers, yep. and, you, know, you really need that team around you to nail it. Yep. What does that take, do you think? What sort of skills do you need to get the best out of that group? You need to set parameters and get out of the way. <laughs> and that has taken me a long time to learn. In fact, if anyone here listening ever worked at Foxtel in the HR team, I think they would have described me as a leader who cared about people, but I think they would have described me probably as a bit of a control freak or if I was particularly interested in a topic, I would get down the hole on it and I would interfere and I thought I was helping, but actually I was probably holding people back from their potential. And then when I made the transition over to run customer and I didn't have deep experience in any of the areas because 
when I worked in HR, I'd done a lot of the jobs that I was now leading the team to do. So I felt like I resort to my comfort zone of doing the work of others because I felt capable and I felt like I knew what I was doing. When I moved into the customer space, actually, it was the leadership skills I needed to apply. I didn't have the technical skills of the call center leader or the supply chain manager or whoever it was that was in the remit at the time. So I realized then, okay, my role is to set the direction, set the strategy and hold people accountable to their results. Definitely set the tone on culture and what I expect of how our people are going to feel about working with us and how they're going to feel about delivering on this. But I was adding no value by telling a call center leader how to get the better results because they were the expert, right? So that's why you always hire people that are way better at you than things because that's how you create a high-performing team. So it took me a long time to really learn that skill. And then when I came to be the secretary, I had a lot of experience by then in across the customer and digital space, but no experience in regulation. And I can remember really doubting myself and saying to the head of Premier and Cabinet at the time, you know, why would you give me this job? Like, I only know how to do half of it. And he said to me, nobody ever gets a CEO job having done every job in the company. By then you're looking for someone who has got strong leadership skills and can set direction and can get stuff done. And so I've learned that I get involved in a crisis, but my job is to set the scene, to drive the culture, to hold people accountable and then get out of the way and only step back into the fray if there is a reason or a value that I can add. Have you had leadership training or mentorship? Have you done a lot of work, you know, like formal work in that space? Yes. So I've done a huge amount of work on myself. So there's probably three things. One of the things about having a HR background is you tend to trial all of the different 360 degree feedback. So I've been 360 degree feedback to death um, over the years So I've got a lot of self-awareness. There's a big difference between self-awareness and taking action on that Mm -hmm. self-awareness, but I've definitely been given a lot of feedback over the years. The other thing is I've had regular coaches and mentors my whole career that some have been for a reason, some have been for a season, and some have actually turned out to be for a lifetime. But I've definitely, like when I very first came into government, I got a coach who was a former public servant who could just help me navigate why things are the way they are, how to deal with politicians, the kind of thing that a politician is looking for versus what you're, you know, just kind of understanding that landscape. That was a real gap for me. But then after 12 months, I was like, okay, I've got this now. He and I still keep in touch and we're still friends, but we don't have that formal coaching mentoring role anymore because that served its purpose. And then the other big thing I did, which was an absolute game changer for me in 2014, I had the opportunity to go to America and I studied at Stanford University for seven weeks. And it changed the way I saw myself. It changed the way I saw my opinions and it changed how I thought about my career completely. And the reason for that was on my way there, I was thinking, I was doing the typical female thing, you know, I will be the dumbest person in the room. Oh my God, I can't believe I've been given this opportunity to go to America. It must've been a mistake, you know. And then when I got there, it's 180 leaders from all over the world and everyone's in jeans and a t-shirt and nobody has any clue whether you're the CEO, the CFO, the lawyer, the, you know, the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker. And you spend seven weeks working on a variety of projects. You're in study groups, you're learning. And you just, I realized that I thought that all of my colleagues and peers had put me in a box. And what I realized in America was I'd put myself in a box. And when I came back, I started 
talking about things differently. I started expressing interest in the things that really interested me and people were quite willing to give me new opportunities. So I'd thought it was everyone else holding me back, but I realised when I went to the States it was actually me. And that was another big lesson to learn. So I've done a lot of work since then. And when I feel that fear or feel that imposter syndrome, a former leader of mine from Foxtel, Kim Williams, gave me this great piece of advice once, which was to always ask yourself, what's your evidence? And look for your evidence of why you can do something as opposed to your evidence for why you can't. And I think as a female leader, I've always, I always come back to that. When I'm scared, when I was taking on the secretary job, for example, I was scared but I thought, what's my evidence that I can't do this? Other than the feeling of fear, and there wasn't any. There wasn't any evidence to say that I could do it. There wasn't (laughs) any to say that I couldn't. And so over time, I've learned to back myself. I've tended to look at male leaders and gone, you know what, if he can do it, I probably can too. (laughs) Um, And I won't name who. Um, Best leaders you've seen? Did you mention Kim Williams? I did. I learned a huge amount from Kim. Um, Probably one of the best leaders I've seen in my real life, not kind of leaders on a global stage or people I really respect and admire. One of the best leaders I've seen is probably a lady called Deborah Singh, who I worked for many years ago at Woolworths. She went on to be the CEO of Fantastic Holdings. They run Freedom and Fantastic Furniture. And she just had this wonderful balance of being commercially savvy, a great people leader, but really maintaining her femininity. I'd always worked for men and she was probably the first senior female leader I'd seen that I thought really embodied that you could be commercially savvy, be taken seriously and still be feminine and not kind of trade it all in for more masculine characteristics. And that stuck with me for a very long time. So whenever I get asked that question, she's always the first person that comes to my mind. I'm sure there's there's so many more. And in fact, a lot of the people that work, you know, for me, if you like, or who I consider to be my colleagues are actually leaders I look up to and admire, even though, you know, on the org chart, it's the other way around. But a lot of leaders in government I've seen have been really terrific too. But she's she's the one that really stands out for me. How often do the wheels fall off? For me? For you. Oh, all the time. <laughs> Regularly, uh, look, I've got a 15-year-old stepdaughter who lives with us half the time. I've got a five-year-old. It's a big job and it's such a varied job. So you're dealing with different things all the time. You know, I could be dealing with a Service New South Wales issue responding to floods, crisis and grants one minute and I could be dealing with a fair trading complaint the next. And obviously you're working in a political environment. So, you know, that's demanding and and challenging. And so my internal wheels fall off um, regularly. And, you know, we were talking about mental health earlier. I I have to take very deliberate steps to not hit the wall. And I've had to learn that the hard way. I've I've hit the wall a number of times over the years. I'm I'm a doer and I like getting things done and I I can sometimes run too hard and burn out. Burn out, yeah. Yeah. So I've had to learn to see that coming a bit more and try and take care of myself. And the other thing is. As a leader, no matter how down-to-earth you think you are or no matter how down-to-earth you try to be, your position of power holds status and people look to you. And if I'm willing to work through the burnout, no matter what words I use to others about them not needing to do the same, your actions mean more than your words. So I do find myself having to role model taking breaks and doing the right things for my own mental health and positive well-being, so that others know it's safe to do the same. What sort of things do you do? Take breaks. Uh, Which means day off. No, 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 week off. Um, So I've got holidays booked in October, 
but just recently thought, I actually don't think I'm going to make it that far. I need to take a break. So I'm taking a week in August. I've got a very capable team who can step up anytime. It's also been a really big couple of years, right? So you didn't really take a break during COVID. And even if you took a break during COVID, you couldn't go anywhere and you were still thinking about COVID all day long. And one of the things that was unique to the public services, well, probably not just the public service to many, but one of the things I found unique about the situation was you were living with COVID as part of society, but you were also trying to solve COVID every day. So there was just no respite from it as a word, as a conversation. And so it's really only now that we're starting to be able to think about it differently and take take a break from it. So taking a break is one thing. I'm quite vocal about going to get my daughter from daycare or I'm quite vocal about, you know, if I've done something fun on the weekend. I use our social media channels a lot to talk to our team about, you know, what's on my mind and what I'm doing about various things. And I'll be quite public about, you know, I'm going to take a mental health break this weekend And we've got to think about mental health not just as a deficit thing. We've got to think about it as something positive that we can do. This this idea of getting ahead of it and creating a culture where we can have positive mental health and wellbeing at the forefront of what we do, you know, leads to better outcomes later. So I'm regularly revisiting that and what it looks like. I don't always nail it, but I'm I'm really trying to get that balance right. Emma Hogan, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Great to hear a little bit about your career and the incredible journey that you've been on. Looking forward to seeing and watching what you do next. Thanks Thank you very much. Me. This podcast was recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Executive producer is Jennifer Goggin. Series producer is Holly Mitchell and audio imaging by Nat Marshall.